Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. morning we are continuing in our series on the book of Revelation and uh, it's been interesting so far hasn't it? It's been exciting. It's been a challenge. Uh, I've been extra stressed over every sermon in this series so far so uh, but it's been good. It's been good for me and uh, it's definitely an important part of God's word. So I am not a prophet but I would imagine that if you are in the Tulsa area this Wednesday at 12 o'clock, I know what you will experience. And that's because if you've lived here long, you know what happens every Wednesday at 12 o'clock. What? The sirens, right? And uh, if you've never been at the church at noon on a Wednesday, we actually have one right across from our property, and it is intense. I mean, a lot of volume. And you go out the doors here on the east side, and it is blaring. And those sirens are there to warn us. And when the siren goes off, you need to change your position. You need to change your posture. You need to respond. You need to have a plan and be ready. A number of years ago, we were living in Tulsa. We were on a third floor apartment. We didn't really have a great plan. Uh, and storm, a storm wall was headed right at us. The sirens go off. It was, it was either right after, I think we had just gone to bed and they went off. And so we're scrambling. We decide that we'll make our way to the clubhouse because we have a key card to get in. Some of our other neighbors were there. We all joined uh, in the bathroom, which was the safe area. So it was uh, a nice way to get to know our neighbors in a new and fresh way. It wasn't fresh, but it was new. And uh, so we gathered there. I, I've heard of a family uh, in Oklahoma growing up that their tradition, at least at some point along the way, was that the kids would put bike helmets on and get in the bathtub. That's a great plan. I like that. I mean, it makes it fun and uh, it makes a lot of sense. When the sirens go off, you need to respond. But not everybody does. Some people, you know, they grab their phone. They're going outside like, I'm going to catch this, put it up on social media. I'm going to be famous. It's not smart, okay? When the sirens go off, you need to take it seriously. Sometimes the sirens don't go off. Just a few years ago in Midtown, there was one that touched down about three quarters of a mile from my house. I slept through the whole thing, came to church the next morning and was like, why are all these trees down? I had no idea that a tornado had happened. There wasn't warning, and I didn't like that. You know, it took out a Whataburger and uh, TGI Fridays and that the other tall building. I don't know what that one's called. But anyway, it was a serious tornado, and we had no warning whatsoever. Warning is a grace to have those sirens, to be able to see the storm coming and to be able to prepare ourselves is a grace. And in the Old Testament, trumpets were blown for a number of reasons. That's what we're going to talk about this morning is the trumpets, okay? And the text that was just read for us is that the only nice part of the trumpets, and that is trumpet number seven, which is the end. We're going to build toward that point this morning. I saved you all a lot of crazy things that happen in the trumpets. Go home and read it when you're, in, when you're well rested and in a good mood, okay? It's wild what happens in Revelation 8, 9, 10, and 11 building to this point. So trumpets were blown for a number of reasons. They would call people to a holy assembly to declare a feast or a fast. They would announce the enthronement of a new king. 
But primarily, trumpets were blown to warn people. For example, Joel 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. It was a warning. And this morning, as we're going to discover, the, the details of all of the trumpets are not totally clear, at least, at least not to me. But what is super clear about the role of the trumpets in the book of Revelation is that the message of the trumpets is a warning of God's coming judgment, and therefore it serves as a call to repentance. This is what the terrifying scene of these chapters is all about. It's calling us to repent and to return to the Lord. Because the groaning of creation, the daily struggle of life, is crying out to us, something is wrong. Things are not right. Turn around. You are headed down the wrong path. You are headed for destruction. Our world is in chaos. And God's judgment is real. And it's terrifying. Unless you are ready. And the way to be ready is to be marked as one who will be spared the righteous wrath of God. And so this morning in particular, throughout this series, we're having to talk about difficult subjects. Ones that personally I would rather avoid Unfortunately, many people do avoid. We have to talk about God's judgment. And as we talk about judgment, we we understand that that God's judgment uh, is also held together with God's grace. And then we experience both of these realities in what we might call common ways and particular ways. So let let me unpack this for you, okay? We experience, all people experience the common grace of God right? The Bible says that God sends rain on the just and the unjust, right? The sun rises and provides warmth for the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. God provides food for all people, right? Whether we're righteous or unrighteous, there is a common amount of grace. And because of that, here's how I put it in common language, the world is not as bad as it could be. Amen? It's not as bad as it could be. But the other side of that coin is that the world is tremendously not as good as it could be either. And that we experience God's judgment kind of in a common way. We all experience the frustration, the groaning, the the fact that everything in life is more difficult than it's supposed to be. And that's because the world is broken by sin. It's not in the state that it was intended to be. Everyone on earth experiences common grace. Everyone on earth also experiences, in effect, God's common judgment. Now, some people will say, I want to believe in a God of grace. I don't believe in a God of judgment. Well, I would argue that you can't have one without the other. And and in a way, if we really unpack it and understand it, God's judgment is actually also a reflection of his grace. I tell people at funerals all the time, Unfortunately, death is a part of the consequence of life on this earth, but, it, but it's actually a grace because none of us would want to live eternally in this world in its current condition. Amen? There has to be a reset. So the fact that God promises us that there will be a judgment shows that He is holy, He's righteous, but He's also gracious and good. He's not willing to leave us in our current condition. His promise of judgment is a grace to us. It means that God takes sin seriously. He takes evil seriously. 
He's not indifferent. He's not intolerant to evil and sin and suffering that is a result of our own sinfulness. But he's also provided a way, a way for us to experience his grace. And so last week we talked about the seals, and contained within the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. There's this progressive sense, this overlapping layer to the book of Revelation. When we get to the end of a series of seven, the seventh one opens up the way for the next set. So the seventh seal opens us up to the seven trumpets. When we get to the end of the trumpets, the seventh trumpet kind of includes the seven bowls that come after that. And, and perhaps the metaphor is that's helpful is different camera angles on the same scene, except there's an intensification in this progression. There's a growing sense of urgency. So with the unveiling of the seals, it says the four horsemen were given power over a fourth of the earth, one quarter, 25%. In this section, we see this series, this repetition of the portion one third, 33%. So I'm not a math major, but a third is more than a quarter, right? There's a sense of a growing intensification here. And like all the numbers in the book of Revelation, I believe these fractions are symbolic. They're not statistics. Okay, let's don't miss the point. They're symbolic. And the fractions are a symbol of God's mercy and God's patience. Because what's being announced here is a partial judgment. One third, not complete. A partial judgment judgment that is unfolding through history and a promise though that one day there will be complete judgment before we get there the warning signs go off the sirens go off you need to get ready you need to put your bike helmet on and get in the bathtub you need to be ready for the coming judgment the warning is there it's been given god doesn't surprise us And this is really true all throughout the Bible. I think if we read the Bible honestly, we see that over and over again, God says, look, here's the deal. If you go this way, here's what's going to happen. And if you go this way, here's what's going to happen. There's no surprises in life. And people go this way and they experience the consequences of their sins. God isn't trying to trick us. He's not trying to hide from us. He makes his plan clear. He says "There's there's a judgment that is coming. And it shouldn't catch anyone off guard because the warning bells and sirens of history and of human brokenness and tragedy and of famine and of earthquake and plague and injustice, all of this is screaming, the world is not right. There has to be a better way than this. But for now, the warning is partial. One-third, one-third, one-third. This repetition is to say it's partial. It's partial. It's partial. But there is a fullness that's coming. And you need to be prepared. Second Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you. Amen. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is merciful. He is patient. He is kind. He is giving us the sirens. But we need to pay attention. We need to not delay. There's a sense of urgency. The time to respond is now. Quit trying to live life on your own. Quit trying to live life with, without reference to God. Quit trying to make it about you and your performance or your cleverness or your ability. God has made a way, and the way is grace. The way is grace. 
And I've, I've said this before, but you'll hear me say it again. The gospel is incredibly inclusive and exclusive at the same time. The gospel is incredibly inclusive in that it is the way for all. For all peoples, all ethnicities, all languages, people, whether young or old, whether rich or poor, it doesn't matter your status in life. It's the way. It's incredibly inclusive. All who will come and surrender by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will acknowledge their sins, will repent and turn away, place themselves before God will clothe themselves in the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith and will say, it's not my mind to earn. He has earned it for me. It's the way for all. However, it's incredibly exclusive in that it is the only way. Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it is the way for all, not just for certain people. It's not a secret. It's the way for all. And there's a progression, there's an intensification from the seals to now the trumpets and then later the bowls. I'm going to get somebody else to preach that one. I don't know. I just, it keeps getting more and more intense. And it's designed to call the listener, to call us, the one hearing, to see and to hear with urgency. Don't delay. The warning sign is going off. Something is not right in our world. In fact, everything is not right and the time to respond is now. So the seven angels blow seven trumpets. Like the seals, the trumpets are grouped into two sets. The first four are clustered together. We get a little bit more information with five and six, and then we get this big gap before we get to seven. It's the same with the seals as it is with the trumpets. The first four trumpets announce natural disasters. Some think this refers to actual natural disasters in history, which is very possible. Others believe that these natural disasters are symbols of world events, of the rising and falling of different empires and different world leaders. That's possible as well. But these first four certainly remind us of the plagues against the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. There's a lot of parallels there. And then in the fifth and sixth trumpets, we see these two different armies mobilized. And again, some believe that these armies refer to past events, right? The fall of Babylon, uh, the fall of these great empires and different things. Others see in these armies references to contemporary situations and conflicts going on. Again, I'm not totally sure. Maybe there is a double fulfillment there. But I wonder if the spiritual principle behind these armies isn't even more clear, which is that these two different armies symbolize demons and angels, right? Angels and fallen angels, portraying the cosmic battle of spiritual warfare that is happening in our world every day. When you look, there's this, there's this army of locusts. There's, I mean, it's, it's wild, right? There's so many. And it's like, what is the deal? I, personally, I don't, I don't read it literally, but I don't have a problem with those who do. It, it just it seems to me that there are these mobilized armies and, and what we see there is a reminder that there's a spiritual battle going on in the world. That's what Paul wanted to remind us of at the end of the book of Ephesians. He says, put on the armor of God because there's a battle going on. And that's, after all, the, the goal of Revelation. The intention is to peel back this hidden dimension that we can't see with our five senses, but to see that there's something that's very real even more real than, than the most real thing we've ever experienced. There is this cosmic battle going on in the world between good and evil for the hearts and souls of men and women. The very real battle. And we need to pay attention to this reality. 
Things are more than they seem. Things are more than they seem. While the precise nature of each trumpet is not clear to me, the big picture message is clear. Judgment is being worked out in history, but it's partial. And one day there will be a full and final complete judgment. It was hard if you're not prepared. Which is hard if you're like the people in the days of Noah and you say, oh, no, nah, the flood's not going to come. Are you kidding me? You're serious. Everything's fine. Why are you worried about this? And that's a challenging posture to take. That's a, that's a risky posture to take. To say, you know what? Eh, the world's fine. This is, why are you guys worried about this? No, the world's not fine. It's not fine. I'm not fine. You're not fine. Our created order is not fine. Our relationships are not fine. They're broken. And therefore, God in his grace is going to judge all things and redeem all things. He's going to destroy evil once and for all. Now, the great tragedy of the scene at the end of chapter 9 is that at the sounding of the first six Trumpets, the alarms going off, many still do not repent. Here's how the scene is described. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They still did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. The warning signs are going off and they're not listening. They're not listening. Here's my challenge to you this morning. Don't don't be that person who ignores this. Who says, you know what, I'll I'll figure this out at some point later in my life. You know, once I can once I can kind of figure out all these acute crises that I'm going through, you know, maybe when I'm in a different stage of life. I'll focus on those things. Don't, don't be that person. We need to be ready. And how are we ready? Well, it comes through repentance, through getting on our knees, through humbling ourselves. And not just a one-time repentance, but daily a surrender to come and die to ourselves that Christ can be made in us. So in these chapters 6 through 9, John has described a series of plagues. It's not a happy scene. Environmental disasters, famine, war, persecution. This is our world. So what hope is there for the church in all of this? Where is the good news in this? Well, I think the good news is a hope of a better tomorrow, but I think it's also more than that. It's more than just hunker down and one day we'll have heaven. So for now, let's just kind of, let's just survive. There's more than that. So in chapter 7, there's a pause between the 6th and seventh seals. And in between, there's this incredibly hopeful vision for those who are sealed by the Lamb. That's what we talked about last week. Those who have an ultimate reality of satisfaction, security, and joy in God's presence. But here in chapters 10 and 11, there's a pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And again, the focus is on the church. And the message here is broader. It's more specific. It's more urgent than just a future hope of encouragement. But it's a message that in the midst of the chaos, the church is not only protected and sealed, but the church is victorious. The church 
is victorious. But here's the thing. Victory doesn't always look the way that we think it will. And we think victory means power and influence. We think victory means domination. We think victory means things are going up and to the right, right? That we're growing. Things are just going great. That's not always what it looks like for the church to be victorious. There's a different way. So chapter 10 shows us the role of the church as judgment is worked out on the stage of history. And what are we are called to do? And we are called as a people to proclaim the truth in the midst of the chaos, to be a steady and faithful presence, to keep following in the way of Jesus, to keep doing the things that we are called to do and keep pointing to the truth. And the truth is that there is a God, a living, holy, powerful God. He is the King of heaven, and this is his world. And the humbling truth is that if we don't do things his way, then they won't work. It hasn't been working for us. And when we continually ignore God's will and way, and we ignore his provision, and we don't hear the warning sirens, there's a cost. The way back is repentance. Repentance, to be restored to our true selves, to follow Jesus, to build our life on the way of Jesus, no matter the cost. So how is the church victorious in the midst of this chaos as we wait and we long? Jesus, please come back soon. Please come back soon. But, but while we're here today, what does it look like for us to be victorious? Well, the first victory comes through gospel proclamation. Gospel proclamation. In the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, it says the mystery of God will be accomplished. What's the mystery? Well, in the New Testament, the mystery that's referred to is the gospel itself. It's been revealed that what's been hidden is now been revealed. And it says just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, well, this word announced, it means evangelized. That's, it's the same word there, evangelized. So the purpose of God in this scroll involves the proclamation of the gospel. So before the seventh trumpet comes, the gospel will be proclaimed to the nations. And John is told to eat this scroll verses 8 to 10, just like the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And he says it's both bitter and sweet. And that's the truth. The gospel is, it is both bitter and sweet. First of all, because it is a message of both mercy and of judgment. There's mercy for those who will believe and surrender to this truth, but there's judgment for those who reject it. It's also bittersweet because we know, maybe even by personal experience, that not all will accept this gospel, that some will reject it. Some will consequently reject us because of our belief in this truth. And so it is a bittersweet scroll that John swallows, and in a way it is bittersweet for us as well. His victory comes through gospel people. The people who proclaim this gospel is us. It's the church. In, in chapter 11, there's this interesting image. John is given a measuring rod to measure God's temple. And not surprisingly, I don't believe this is a literal temple here to be rebuilt. There was a temple that was spoken of in, the, in Ezekiel. There was, there was a man who was measuring a new temple. Well, that temple was never built because it was a symbol of God's people in a new creation, which is why this language gets repeated 
at the end of Revelation, verses 20, or chapters 21 and 22, it's very similar to the temple that, that they saw in the book of Ezekiel. You see, the temple in the New Testament is, is who? It's what? It's us. Right? We are called a living temple. We're stones that build this temple. And we don't need another temple to be rebuilt. Because the sacrificial system is over. There's been a once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. And in fact, when we get to the very end of Revelation, it literally tells us that there won't be a temple. We won't need a temple. Because we will be in his presence, fully uninhibited. We will know him face to face. So this temple here is, it's us. It's the people of God. We're the living temple with Jesus as the cornerstone. Victory also will come through suffering, which, was, which looks like death and resurrection. So there's this interesting scene on time to unpack all the details of it. But there are these two witnesses in chapter 11. And again, it may be two actual specific historical figures who are to come. But if you think about it, the, the presence of two witnesses in the Old Testament, that was the standard, right? In the law, you had to have two witnesses. And then when we come to the New Testament and the disciples are sent out, what? Two by two. So this idea of two witnesses is, is confirming the truth of the matter. And I think these witnesses, while they could be figures, I think are indicative of all believers who are called to be witnesses. And at first, these witnesses are protected. But then later, it says the beast comes and kills them. More on that figure coming up in future chapters. But in verses 11 through 13, we see that these two witnesses come back to life. They're raised to life. In effect, they're martyrs. And again, recall the original audience. John is writing to people who knew people who had been martyred. That was their situation. And he's saying, look, things are not as they seem. And right now, the way it looks in your life, when the church is being persecuted, it looks like the forces of hell are winning. That's what it looks like. And John's saying, things are not as they seem. And God brings dead things and brings them back to life. And even those who die for the sake of Christ, they still win. They will be brought back to life. This is the story of the gospel, a Savior who died and was raised to life. It's the story of the church. As we die and Christ is made alive in us, that's what we just talked about on Wednesday night as we started the Lenten season. Our story is a story of death and resurrection. And finally, at the end of the section on the trumpets, we have this incredible vision that God's victory will be realized. Chapter 11, verse 14, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The seventh trumpet sounds accompanied by loud voices declaring that God is the king of the world, that his reign will be eternal. And while a trumpet was often used to call people to repentance, it was also blown to announce the coronation of a new king. And so the seventh trumpet announces the king of heaven. Now, he's not a new king at this point. He's always been the king. But from our perspective, that is when we will see the fullness of his kingdom and every knee will bow and everyone will recognize that Jesus is 
the king. That's the spirit of the occasion of the seventh trumpet. The final trumpet is calling all people to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. All the trumpets leading up are a warning sign to do that now while judgment is partial, to do it before it is too late. And finally, we see that God's victory is celebrated. Celebrated. Verse 17, We give thanks to you, Lord God, the one who is and was, and because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And I think this is, this seventh trumpet here, this is the return of Christ. It feels like, in a way, we should be at the end of the book of Revelation. Like, that feels like the end. And that's because the book is cyclical. We actually come to the point where we're in the flow of things. It is referring to the return of Christ. The book's not chronological. That's why it's messing with you. This is talking about the return of Christ. It comes and keeps cycling back to this moment over and over again, showing us in different ways. And you notice this detail here. It says he is the one who is and the one who was. What's missing there in that typical phrase? One who is to come. It's missing. Why is it missing? Because he's come, right? In the vision, as, as John sees it from Jesus, in the vision at this moment, he isn't the one who is to come anymore. He's here. He's here. Now he's just the one who, who was, but who forever always will be. He is here. We're no longer waiting. We'll be ushered into the eternal present kingdom of God. So how can we respond to such, such an enormous text? I think the first way is through repentance, to repent of anything and everything that is contrary to God's will. Maybe for you, it's, a, it's a, really a first-time repentance to come to the end of yourself and to look up to a merciful and loving God who has made a provision for your salvation, to repent, to turn back to Him. It's a call to repentance for all of us, but it's also a call to intercession. And that simply means to pray on behalf of another. We all know people who don't have the assurance of salvation. And here, we're talking about interceding, pleading for the mercy and salvation of those people, of those who do not know Jesus. It's an urgent call. But you might say, well, I've, I heard the sirens and I have responded. But well, there's others. We need to be faithful to pray for them. And we need to be faithful, finally, to proclaim the truth to them. To be focused on the Great Commission of being a part of the proclamation of the good news of the gospel through our words, through our deeds, through our giving, through our going, through our praying. To be all in on this incredible mandate. I want to close with this, Galatians 6, 9. It says, let us not become weary in doing good. We're all tired. The world in its chaos is exhausting. Don't grow weary. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Heed the warning signs. Know where we're headed. And by the grace of God, may we be faithful today and every day until we reach the finish. Whether that's his return or our death, may we be faithful to the finish. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this book. That while it's overwhelming in detail, 
Well, it talks about realities that we don't think about that much on a daily basis. When we read it through the lens of your grace, we can see that this book contains good news, that the book of Revelation ultimately is about the gospel, the good news of what you have done for us, offering us a new way and a new life, offering us a reconnection with the Father. So I pray today that we would grasp a hold of these truths. Lord, that we would respond if we haven't, and that we would be faithful to pray and to proclaim your truth to all who do not have the gift of eternal life. Lord, help us to take these matters seriously, Lord, but to be encouraged and to be filled with joy as we live into these truths. God, would you make us faithful to the finish? Amen. Amen.